0: And welcome to our Faith in Philanthropy podcast series, where we are exploring what philanthropy and purpose means from a Muslim perspective. My name is Safiya Dondia, and I am part of the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services team at UBS. We speak about faith because in working closely with our clients and their families, we recognize the important role that faith plays for many in shaping values, in identifying needs, and in helping others. It's oftentimes central to why people give and how they give. Thanks for tuning in to the first podcast in our series, and to those who are participating, a very happy Ramadan Mubarak to you and your family. As Ramadan is typically a time where charitable giving is elevated, we're excited to dig into various topics that will help you think about how to be strategic with your philanthropy. Joining us today, I'm delighted to introduce Sarah Velix, who is the Program Director for the Child Protection Portfolio at the UBS Optimist Foundation. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Our topic today is such an interesting one. Adoption, foster care, and taking care of children and orphans in need are common themes across the world's major religions. There are mentions of this across Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And in Islam, orphans are mentioned in the Quran, the Holy Book, 22 times. There's such a major emphasis on how how this good deed can be so beneficial in this life and in the next. And because of this large emphasis... Uh, it's a major philanthropic focus area that many faith-based donors tend to give to and support. However, something shocking to be aware of is that 80% of children in orphanages have a living biological parent. They are not actually orphans. And because of poverty and other reasons we'll get into, These children end up in institutions, and it's estimated that there are 2 million to 8 million children living in orphanages worldwide, and they don't experience any continuity of care. Um, They they have difficulty forming and maintaining relationships. They experience delays in, in physical, cognitive, emotional, and psychological development. They're more likely to be victims of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. And when leaving orphanage care, these children can often end up homeless or involved in crime or even suicidal, and it can truly be heartbreaking to see. Sarah, could you provide some additional context for us around why orphanages are being phased out in many countries and some of the many misconceptions around supporting children in these
1: institutions? Sure, thanks, Zafia. So let's start with why people support orphanages. People around the world support orphanages out of compassion for the children living in them because they believe these children don't have families or alternatives and that orphanages save children from the harm of destitution. People want to do good. Their hearts really are in the right place. But what they don't realise is that children um, in these institutions are in there because the system is broken and also that these institutions harm children. As you say, evidence shows that about 80% of children living in orphanages around the world are in fact not orphans. They have one or both parents alive. Now, with the right support, these children could be living in families. That's what I mean by the system is broken. It supports the orphanage and not the family. Now that we know that most of these children aren't orphanage, orphans, sorry, it doesn't seem right to call these institutions orphanages, and in fact, they're known by many different names, including boarding school, children's homes, children's villages, residential hospitals, et cetera. But what we're really talking about here is institutional care, which is any kind of residential care where Children are separated from their families and their community. Children have limited control over their lives. And the organization's needs are more important than the child's individualized needs. Now, evidence shows that this sort of institutional care is very harmful to children. Firstly, because it leaves children vulnerable, as you mentioned, to all types of neglect, abuse and exploitation from staff, visitors, volunteers, and even, sadly, older children. Secondly, and importantly, because it deprives the child of parental love found in family life. By parental love, I mean that consistent, warm, long-term relationship a primary adult carer develops with a child. Now, this could come from birth parents, it could come from adoptive parents, aunties or uncle guardians. Children need this parental love for their normal social, emotional, and physical development. And without it, they are much more likely to struggle in adulthood. In short, and this is the main message, children need to grow up in families to thrive in life. Now, that's why it's so important to protect children's experiences in childhood. For the immediate obvious child protection reasons, to stop the immediate harm and hurt, but also because protecting childhood maximizes children's future well-being. And in fact, studies have shown that experiencing layers of adversity in childhood, such as neglect, abuse, has a cumulative impact. The more trauma in childhood, the greater the risk of negative outcomes in adulthood, such as those that you mentioned before, mental health problems, which could include depression, anxiety, and very sadly, suicide, alcohol or drug-related dependency, reduced ability to engage in education or employment difficulties. So this really highlights for us the harm of institutional care because children don't receive parental love in orphanages and also because they're at risk of multiple layers of trauma when they grow up in these places, meaning that there really is no such thing as a good orphanage.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Sarah. Given the detrimental effects that these institutions have on children, can you expand a little bit more on how children actually end up in these
1: situations and end up in institutional care? Sure. It's it's easy to think that you know with all these risks inherent in institutional care, you know why do these children, if they have parents, end up there? Well. Very much the same as those who send money to orphanages. Many parents are trying to do the right thing by these children. Very often, poverty is the main driver behind children being put into institutions. Um, you know, where social protection frameworks are weak, families faced with impossible choices and who are desperately poor put their children into institutional care because they think at least they'll be fed and clothed there. They do it to keep their children alive. Many of these institutions also offer education, so again, vulnerable families feel their children will be better off placed in care because the families can't afford to educate their children themselves. These parents think they're protecting their children's futures. A further drive could be dis- a further drive sorry could be disability um, the child may need some or significant support because of a disability. And mainstream schools or services don't provide the requisite support whereas the institution does. And finally there could be problems within the family that mean the parents can't care for their child such as illness, alcoholism, drug problems, domestic violence. Which comes back to my early point that the system is broken. So funding should go to supporting these families to relieve their vulnerabilities Poverty alleviation programs are needed. Education should be accessible to all. Children um, with disabilities need to be able to be included in mainstream education. Family strengthening programs need to be funded. And substance disorder programs um, would help families facing addiction issues. If the right models are funded the estimated, and I'll give a mid-range of what you described before, of the number of children living in care, which is 5.4 million children living in institutional care around the world. If the right models were funded, those children would be growing up in families and they'd be growing up in their communities.
0: It is truly heartbreaking that, you know, these families think that they are doing the best possible thing that they can for their child and Oftentimes, it it could lead to them being in these situations where they find themselves even more vulnerable and even more at risk. Given the challenges and and detrimental effects of of these institutions, what are the right models that you're referring to? What are the alternate solutions to provide care for for these children in need?
1: So I flagged some of the social protection programs that are needed to help children stay in their families. Um, With regard to care itself, alternative care models of family care need to be provided if a child can't stay with their birth family because it's not possible. So, for example, you could have kinship care, foster care or adoption program. The, the crux of it is that institutional care needs to be removed as an option for all children. But most importantly, families need to be supported so that only those children who really need to be in the alternative care system are in it. And for those children in the system, alternative care needs to be family-based care. The central pillar here is that children belong in families, and they do best off if they grow up
0: in a family. Absolutely. And can you expand on how these alternate solutions are incorporated into the work that we do at the UBS Optimist Foundation and within the organizations that we support through the protection portfolio, which you oversee?
1: UBS Optimus Foundation, through its child protection portfolio, which I direct, funds a lot of organizations that work in the, we call it the families, not orphanages space. Our grantees are located in many different countries throughout the world. We have grantees in Uganda, South Africa, Nepal, Tanzania, Cambodia. We're exploring a program in Indonesia. Now, these grantees employ many different models that use some of the methods that I described above, for example, family strengthening programs, developing foster care options. They may also include um, in their models the institutional work, which means helping children to leave orphanages for family care, which can involve family tracing, supporting the family as the child is reintroduced. And very often that may be repurposing an orphanage to ensure that they're in employment for the staff there, but turning it into a community hub um, that families and members of the community can access services through. So lots of different elements to models, but their common feature is that the grantees that we fund are all working to keep children or put children into families because, as we've described, um, and for the reasons discussed... Children thrive in families.
0: And is there an example that you're able to highlight of a story that you've come across in your time working with these organizations that are employing these families, not orphanages, um, models in their in their programs that really showcase the impact of this work and how a child who may have been in that type of vulnerable situation where their family sent them to this institution thinking that, um, you know, they would have an opportunity for a better future. But in reality, um, you know, they were exposed to greater risk. And I know when children sometimes find themselves in, in those situations and institutions, they they are put at greater risk in terms of, you know, potential trafficking um, risk as well. So is there anything that you can think of um, that may be worth highlighting in terms of showcasing how these children, you know, are put into these situations and how the organizations that we support can provide them with the resources and capabilities for that reunion with their families and for that support to help get them out of that situation
1: yes i can um for the sake of anonymity i won't name the particular grantee because that may allow it to be um sort of funneled down but i have a grantee in the African continent um, that works in this uh, in this space, and we've recently funded a model whereby care leavers, so children that have aged out of orphanages, um, are connecting with recent graduates of a social work program at a major university and country to develop trauma-informed services for. Care leavers. So it's a really lovely peer support model where peers um, are helping social workers understand the trauma that they've experienced through growing up in these orphanages or in this particular orphanage, and and what support they need. So it's capacity building. It's empowering for the care leaver, and it also ensures that professionals um, understand the trauma that is experienced and what care leavers need. But I think. The, the interesting and compelling and very sad um, element to this program being set up was that um, the care leavers involved were sexually assaulted throughout their childhood in the orphanage and didn't want this to ever happen to anybody ever again. So this is the story of trauma, but also it's a story of survivor um survivors coming forward and changing the future for themselves with the help of other people. So, um, you know, it's it's often very difficult to get close to the stories of what our grantees work with. Um, But that voice is so important to not be lost. And that's why we fund these programs, because, you know, these are real people that this is happening to. And, you know, we need to put those real people at the center of our programs. Um, So that's just a small way of demonstrating the risk that children are at if they grow up in orphanages without parental care, Um, but also how we are making sure that no child is left behind, that even for those children who have experienced this type of trauma, you know, we are developing programs to make sure that they have the best future because through no fault of their own, they experienced a difficult childhood.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. That's very powerful. I think it's it's important to also note that in Islam, there is such great reward associated with sponsoring an orphan. And some of the benefits mentioned include becoming close to the prophet. The prophet once said, the one who cares for an orphan and myself will be together in paradise like this and he held two fingers together to illustrate. The Prophet also said, the best house among Muslims is the house in which orphans are well treated, and the worst house among Muslims is the house in which orphans are ill-treated. Meaning the status of the best house is not achieved by anything material, but by showing that care and concern for orphans. And there is also a belief that giving charity increases our wealth, and when giving to orphans, your own wealth will be blessed. And so there's an immense amount of benefit in giving in this philanthropic area. And especially during this time in Ramadan, when charitable giving and fulfilling your Zagat and Sadaqah is typically elevated, Sarah, the last thing I would ask you is, when donors are considering supporting or sponsoring orphans this Ramadan or beyond, what would you say are important things to look for to ensure the program that you are supporting is as impactful as possible and is looking out for the children's well being first and foremost.
1: Well, I'll just I'll just keep it relevant to, to the subject of today, which is families not orphanages and and I would just reiterate that um, you know, we there is no such thing as a good orphanage. So you know, even where people may come forward and say, but, you know, my orphanage um, is very well organized and, you know, we have very good oversight, Um, you know, none of of those types of abuses or neglect can take place here. We have to also look at that parental love element. So um, absolutely important for the social, emotional, cognitive, physical development of a child and that, Without that parental love, children just do not develop the internal capabilities to pursue the best life for themselves. And so that is why, um, you know, we are advocates of children growing up in families. So I I would look to support programs that, um, you know, support the community and support the opportunity for children to grow up in families.
0: Thanks for outlining that. I think that's really important to be aware of when considering which types of programs to support. And in in considering your Zagat, you know, the the mandatory charitable contribution that Muslims must fill on an annual basis. God describes the categories of people that are designated as deserving recipients of our wealth as the God, um, and. Those are described as the indigenous and the wayfarer, beggars, freedom of, freedom of slaves. Those make up half of the exclusive eligibles without categories, but orphans are placed before all of them, with only a a near relative becoming a higher charitable priority than orphans. And so, given this direction in the religion and the strong emphasis and and reward associated with it, giving in this area is is truly something to consider for those, as we do consider how to fulfill the Gath and of the Trinidad, but it is also simultaneously just as important to be aware of supporting organizations and programs that are focused on children's well-being and placing vulnerable children into those family settings. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, Sarah. I really appreciate you joining today and sharing some of the compelling work that we're achieving through the Protection Portfolio of the Optimist Foundation. And for those tuning in, if you are interested in learning more about our Faith and Philanthropy Initiative, please reach out to your UBS Financial Advisor or our Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services team. And please be sure to tune in to next week's podcast as we continue to feature speakers and discuss topics exploring philanthropy and purpose from a Muslim perspective. Thank you.
2: The information in this discussion has been prepared by and reflects the opinions and various investment views of the speaker. UBS Financial Services, Inc. has not independently verified such information and does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities, or views stated herein. Any specific securities, securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different in material ways. We are governed by different laws and separate arrangements